trust that you're in Romans 6. Um, again, this is so very important to us, and I know I mention that like all the time. But Romans 6 is where like all of us are. I mean, if we're not all in Christ, I'm surprised, but for all those who are saved and in Christ, Romans 6 is where you go. It is, if you will, the next step. It's part of the process. So these are such such important truths for us to understand. But I want to take you back to some of the things that I said last week so that we can quickly catch up to where we need to be this morning. And I've said this not just last week, but I think I've said this just about every week in the last several weeks. Everything that God has done for us, He has done in and through His Son. And it all comes to us through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, in Romans 1 through 5, Paul makes this very sound argument that through the gospel, you and I are justified. It's through the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ that we're saved. And we all understand that and realize that. But Paul continues the argument. And so as we walk through chapter 6 through 8, it's the very same gospel through which we are sanctified. It's the very same gospel through which we are made more like Christ. In other words, we never graduate from the gospel. We never move beyond it. We never go around it. There is no advance to make. It is always the gospel because God has done everything for us in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we talk about the process of sanctification, what we're doing is we're pouring ourselves into the gospel further to understand what God has done in regard to sanctification or in regard to making us more like Jesus. The answer is in the gospel. Now, I mentioned last week that this part is so necessary for us to understand, and that's the process. What is the process that we go through in order that we be made more like Christ? And God always begins with principles. In other words, He constructs a foundation of understanding for us by communicating the principles or the wisdom of God that we take into our souls, that we receive, that we believe, that we allow these principles to just radically change how we think. So in 6 and most of chapter 7, we'll continue along the principles, building a foundation. But we move from principle to practice because we've got to apply the principles. And this is the way that we learn anything and everything, all the way down to sports, if you'll just think about it. We build the foundation with understanding, and once we have the understanding, we go into the application. Now, the last thing Paul will come to, we'll find in chapter 8, and that's the power, which is very interesting to us, because the power is the Holy Spirit, which is the grand promise of the gospel. I mean, that's what we've been waiting for, that the power of God, the Spirit of God might reside in us, and that's accomplished through the gospel. So why in the world wouldn't we start with the power, if that's the grand gift? Well, the reason is, it's the power that enables us to apply the principles. So if you don't know the principles, why in the world do you need the power, you see? Now, this is the question that I've come to in the study of all this that's given me a much better understanding. Is the reason we see so little power from the Holy Spirit in our day, is it because we refuse to hear, believe, and conduct our lives according to the principles of God's Word. 
You think about this, the Holy Spirit's been relegated to the charismatic church in signs and miracles and wonders. And we call that power. But the greatest power that the Holy Spirit displays is when He raises a man from the dead. When He brings us from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, right? When He saves us, that is the great demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. But that power continues in us in order to make us more like Christ. In other words, men, when you realize what you've done with your wife or against your wife or what you said is wrong and you go to her and you ask for her forgiveness saying, I was totally wrong in what I said, please forgive me. The Holy Spirit is demonstrating a tremendous power in your life. You understand that? So here's what I'm thinking that actually I'm convinced of at this point in my study. The reason that we're not seeing the power at work or the Holy Spirit at work in the church today is because the church has stopped believing in the principles and the truths and the wisdom of God. Take sexuality, for instance. There's so many within the church that have formed their opinions based on culture, based on philosophy, based on humanism, based on feelings. Therefore, we might have varying degrees about sexuality in the church. Now, if God has clearly instructed us in His Word about all of those issues concerning sexuality, why is it that we haven't rejected everything that we're hearing from the world? Because if the whole church was moving forward in unity under the wisdom of God, and we had all had the same opinion and held to the same belief in regard to that, even just that particular matter, you do understand that we would see a greater demonstration of the Holy Spirit because there's power sitting there waiting for us to apply the principle. But we don't believe in the principles anymore. And this has been a frustrating point in my whole life, wondering, am I, am I just the slow one in growing up like Jesus? Do I just not get it, Lord? Do I hinder you so much that you just struggle to make me more like Christ? And some of you might say amen to that because some of you might feel the exact same way. But here's the reason for it. We're just not thinking like Christ. We trust in what we think. We trust in what we hear. We trust in our own wisdom rather than rejecting all that and saying, you know what, here I stand firmly on what God has said in His Word. And when we get to that place, I think you'll see more power in your life. So we start with principles. But this absolutely should make sense to us because if you think about it, in order to be saved, you needed to understand some things in the gospel. There's some truths or principles in the gospel that you have to understand before you can be saved. For instance, you have to understand that you're a sinner separated from God and under the judgment of God and the wrath of God. If you don't understand that you're a sinner, you have no need for a Savior. And I've got a friend like that that I've talked to with the gospel about before. I don't understand why I need to be saved. I'm not a bad person. You see, there's some things that you have to understand. You have to understand that you're lost and separated from God or you can't be saved. Also, you have to understand what God has done on your behalf. You have to understand that Jesus, who is fully God, became man, put on the flesh, lived a perfect life, kept the law of God all the way down to the deepest desires within his heart, his thoughts, his words, his deeds, everything perfectly. He went to the cross and upon his back, he lifted our sin and carried our sin to Calvary. Now, he was not made a sinner 
Don't, don't get this confused. Christ did not go in guilt and in shame. He carried our guilt and shame because He was still God and He was still holy. And yet He died in our place. The death we deserved, He died for us. You have to understand that. If you don't understand who Christ is, you can't be saved. You don't understand the basic principles of the gospel, right? Recently, Sheila was with me. We were sitting in the doctor's office. And I noticed an older man making his way. Uh, we were there with mom, making his older way through the crowd, saying something to everybody. He finally made his way around to me, and he leaned over, and he said, God loves you. And I said, I know God loves me because he sent his son to die for me. The Lord Jesus Christ took my penalty that I deserved, and he died on Calvary for my sin. And he closed his mouth, and he walked away. You see, walking, away, walking around saying, God loves you, doesn't get it done. There's other things you have to say if you want to bring people into a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. God loves you is not the gospel. It's a wonderful part of the gospel. But there are other things that you must understand. Now, in the very same way, if it's the gospel that saves us, and it's the same gospel that sanctifies us, you need to understand that there's some things that you need to get in order to walk through this process of sanctification successfully. There's some things that you need to understand. And I bet that's the first time you've ever heard those words in your life. Because when you think about it, what is our normal process of wanting to be made more like Christ? You go, Brother Joey, I pray. And, and to that, I praise the Lord. If I know that you're falling on your face, begging God to make you more like Jesus, and I know many of you do, your pastor is so ridiculously proud of you. That needs to be a part of your life. But let me encourage you, multiply it times 10 and do it about 10 times more than you're already doing it. Finding yourself weeping over your sin, asking God to make me more like your son. But there's more. There's more. There's things that you need to understand about how God goes about the business of making you more like his son. And so when we're in Romans 6, we see one of the very first things that we need to know. Look at verse 3 of this passage. Do you not know? Now, right out of the gate, there's something we need to know. I've just started talking about sanctification, and Paul turns very quickly. There's something you need to know. Now, watch what he says. That all of us who have been baptized into, one of the most significant words in the passage, into Christ Jesus. In other words, through the gospel and our faith and trust in Christ, We've been made one with the Lord Jesus. Now, this is where we were last week. Last week, we talked about our union with Adam. And I use the analogy of marriage, and I want to stay right there because we used to be married. We had a first marriage. We all had him. We all had the same husband, if you will, and his name was Adam. And what a sorry guy that was. The only thing he ever brought to us was sin and shame and guilt and death and condemnation. That was our first husband. And we could not get out of that relationship. We were in union with that man, and he wrecked and he ruined our life. Now, we, you know, free from guilt because it was all his fault. No, it was not all his fault. We gladly walked in our first husband's way. As he rebelled against God, we followed along behind our first husband, rebelling against God with just as much joy in our heart as Adam had. But then along came our second husband. And what a fine husband he was. 
Because He led us in life. He led us in forgiveness and peace and joy and sanctification. What a wonderful and beautiful husband He was. And so through the gospel, and Paul uses the phrase baptize, is he talking about the physical act? Yeah, to some degree. Is he talking about the spiritual act, what actually takes place? Yes, to some degree. But he's trying to teach us when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus, you are married, your second marriage. And you are united with him. And the reason that that's so important for you to get in your mind, because every experience Jesus has has now become your experience. Remember, I used the analogy of me and Paige. Because we're one in Christ, we share everything. Because you've been made one with the Lord Jesus, you now share in everything. And that's going to lead to our sanctification, you understand. Because new life can only be found in union to Christ. Jesus Christ is the very source of sanctification, and there is no other. Jesus Christ is the very one through which we are made like Christ. In other words, there's no other way for you to be made holy. It's absolutely ridiculous, and it's offensive to God to make or, or for you to believe that you can gain ground with God, be made more like God, be accepted by God apart from His Son. The idea that you could ever show up in the presence of the Father and be justified because you're a good person is profoundly offensive to God. Don't you dare show up in that way. But the idea that you can sanctify yourself or make yourself more like Christ apart from Christ is equally offensive to God. He is the very source of our sanctification. So the first thing that you need to get in your mind is the only way that I'm going to be sanctified is by pressing into this union, this marriage that I have in the Lord Jesus. It's only when I am in Him can I be made like Him. Okay? If you want to know why you're struggling in your sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, let me tell you, number one, why that is. Because you're not walking in Him. You're not remaining in Him. You're living so much of your life apart from Him, you'll never be made like Him. But the more that we draw into this union, the more that we become like Him. Now, Paul makes three points here that he wants us to understand that we've been made like. And I read them this morning. But let me go back and, and look at verse 3 and 4 once again. Because there's three things that Paul wants to press into our unity or what we've shared with Christ. Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into His Death, number one, we shared in his death. Verse four, therefore we've been buried with him. We shared in his burial through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So Paul says, Here's, there's three things that you shared in. Death, burial, and resurrection. And I said this last week, and this is something else that you're going to have to understand within your mind. When he died, you died. And it's legal. It's binding in the counsel of God. When Christ died, you died. You were in union with him. When Christ was buried, and I'll give you the emphasis of that in just a few minutes, you were buried with him. It was legal. It's written down in the, in the council in the courtroom of God. There was a day in which you were buried, and it was the very same day in which Christ was buried. And there's a reason for that. But likewise, when Christ was raised, you're like, wait a minute, I haven't been raised yet. 
No, you're, you're going to be raised in that sense, but you need to understand legally in the eyes and the wisdom of God, the day Jesus walked out of the tomb was the day you walked out of the tomb hand in hand with your husband. Because it was necessary for that to take place in order for you to be sanctified. So why did we need to join him in death? Why did we need to join him in burial? And why did we need to join him in resurrection? Well, I think... To better understand that, you need to ask this question first. Why was it so necessary for Jesus to die? Now, I know you know the answer to that, right? And it's simply this, because we were sinners. And if you don't know it within your own conscience, certainly you hear it from the Word of God in Romans 3, 23, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Christ had to die because you and I were sinners. But our condition was worse even than that because we were enslaved in sin. Paul likes this illustration of slavery. In fact, he uses it three times in Romans 6. Let me show it to you. Look at the last phrase in verse 6. Romans 6, verse 6, last phrase. So that we would no longer be what? Slaves to sin. Look at verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin. Look at verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin. You see, not only were we sinners before Jesus, but we were held in bondage in sin. And we had no strength and no ability to free ourselves. Now let me tell you right now, you have no context for slavery. Nobody, I don't care what color they are, living in the United States right now in our day has no context for slavery. We've never been there. You see, we're so into our freedom. And we're so adamant about obtaining and maintaining our freedom. We have no context for slavery. But a slave has absolutely no freedoms. No rights. There are no rights. There are no privileges. I don't care what you think. I don't care what you want. I don't care where you want to be. None of that matters to someone who's been sold into slavery and who's bound. They do what they're told, when they're told, how they're told. Even when it comes to sleep, you'll sleep when I tell you to sleep and you'll get up when I tell you to get up. That's what it means to be bound in slavery and to walk about in change. So not only were we sinners, but we were in change. We were bound in our sin. But our condition's even worse than that. Look all the way into Romans 6.23. What is the punishment for sin? Verse 23, for the wages of sin is what? Death. You see, we were in a terrible shape. We were sinners, we were bound in sin, and we were headed for death. Therefore, Christ died in our place. So why did Jesus die? Because we were sinners bound for condemnation in hell. Therefore, He dies in our place. Well, why was He buried? Because that's so weird. In fact... If you're taking notes, jot down 1 Corinthians 15, 3. It's Paul's smallest abbreviated version of the gospel. And this is what Paul says. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. 
Even in the abbreviated version of the gospel, Paul says buried. And we're like, why do we even need buried? We know the process. Why don't we just talk about death and life? Why do you want to talk about putting them in the ground? Well, burial points in both directions and it puts emphasis in both directions. We only bury dead people. I mean, ask Dustin. We don't put somebody in the ground where there's a hope. You know, they're really, 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 really sick. I mean, it's like fourth on to fifth stage, and there's not even that stage of cancer. You know, I mean, the, the, the heart monitor's going down, the blood pressure's dropping. I mean, it's just a matter of minutes. No one says, well, just go ahead and put them in the ground. You don't do that, right? We only put people in the ground who are dead, dead. It's over. All hope of life, all vital signs, everything significant is over. They're dead, and therefore at that point we bury them. Why was it significant that Christ be buried? In order that we might understand Jesus Christ really died. He was God, He became a man, and He really died. Like I say sometimes, He really died, y'all. The heart stopped. The lungs stopped. All the vital signs and all the organs shut down. Everything stopped. He was dead dead. He wasn't like dead. It's not a metaphor. It's not an illustration. He wasn't moving toward death. No, God became a man and in the flesh that man died and they put him in the ground and that's important. But not only does burial remind us of the death, burial also teaches us something about the resurrection. Because if there's something that's going to happen now, we have to understand that the only thing that can happen now is that He be raised. And if He's raised, He's going to have to be different because everything that was flesh and old is dead and we're not going to resurrect what was once before. We don't want that. And so the fact that He was buried puts emphasis on the death, but the fact that He was buried puts emphasis on the life. And now we have hope that Christ would be raised, and He'd be raised in glory. He'd be raised in something that was completely different than who He was. And so it was necessary, not only for His death, but it was also necessary for His burial, but it was also necessary for Him to be raised. And there's two reasons that it was necessary for Him to be raised, but I'm just going to give you one now. Look back at Romans 4.25. We've already been through this. He was, Romans 4.25, delivered over because of our sin or transgression, and He was raised because of our what? Justification. There's reason number one that Jesus had to be raised in, in order that you and I might be saved. Jesus had to be raised so that when we stood in heaven before God, God would declare us not guilty. If He had not been raised, we could not be declared not guilty. And therefore, the first reason that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead was in order that we might be justified in the eyes of God. But let's go on to some other questions before I come back to the second reason that had to be raised. And, and here we go. Why was it necessary that you and I be at one with Jesus in His death. In other words, why does God have it written down the day Jesus died in time and space was the day that you died? Why? Why do I have to die when He dies? Well, look at verse 6 and verse 7 of Romans 6, and He tells you. 
Romans 6, verse 6. And look at what we have. Knowing. The very first word. In other words, here's something else you need to know. If you want to walk about in the process of sanctification, here comes number two. Knowing this. Look what he says. That our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. In other words, the very first reason, or, or the reason rather, why you had to be one in the death of Christ is so that your old man, who you were in Adam before you met Jesus, had to be crucified. We had to do away with the old man. Because the old man was under condemnation. The old man was a child of wrath. We had to put down, if you will, the old man. And so the way that God accomplishes that is He unites us, legally considers us as having died when Jesus died, so that who we were before Jesus would die. So again, when He was crucified, you were crucified. Your old man, your body of sin was put down. That's the first thing you need to settle in your mind in regard to this process of being made like Jesus. You're not who you once were. Who you were died on the day that Jesus died. Now the second thing that we're united in is this, is this idea of burial. Why was it necessary that we even had to be united in the burial when they put Jesus in the tomb? Why did God say, okay, I've reckoned it to my people, that as they're carrying the body of Jesus into the tomb, why are they carrying the body of those who will believe in Him into that same tomb? Well, for the very same reason, who do you put in a tomb? You only put the dead in the tomb. So if you're thinking, and this is the part that crushes my soul with joy, if you're thinking there's something in you from the old way, there's not. He legitimately died. There was no heartbeat, there was no breath, there was no functioning of the organs in the old man because they put you in the tomb with Christ. Who you were is no longer alive. You've been put in the ground. But there's another reason, right? Because burial points to the same way. So if I've been put in the ground and I still have hope in Christ, that's got to mean... That when he's raised, I'm raised. And when I'm raised, I am not who I was. I am something different now. I am something that has been made new. See why burial, I mean, burial is like my favorite thing now once I figured this out. If I'm in a tomb and there's still hope, the only thing that can possibly take place is when I walk out of that tomb, I am a new man. And the old man's gone, and the new man in Christ has been raised from the dead. So again, why was it necessary that you be raised with Jesus? Well, I told you Romans 4.25, in order that we might be justified. But now look at Romans 6.4. And here's your second reason that you be made one in the resurrection of Christ. Look what God says here. Therefore, we've been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that, circle so that, here's your reason. 
As Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk. What? Walk in newness of life. That's the purpose of all this. I almost summed it up this way. Why did I have to join Jesus in death in order that you might be raised in life? Why did I have to join Jesus in a burial in order that you be raised a new man? Why did I have to be joined to Christ in His resurrection? For the same reason, in order that you be raised from the dead. You see, again, the gospel doesn't just save you. It's the gospel that makes you like Jesus Christ. It's the gospel that sanctifies you. And this idea of new it is radically new life altogether. In 6.4, he refers to it as the newness of life. But listen, here's where you're hung up. This is not old life part two. When you came to faith in Christ, it's not a do-over. It's not raising who you once were. Everything, everything has been made new. Notice with me. Oh, well, you don't have to turn there. Let me just give you some passages to save us some time. Listen to Paul's word in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Listen to what he says in Galatians 6 and verse 15. Neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but the only thing that counts is a new creation. In other words, religion and rituals and externalism, none of that matters. It's all washed out. The only thing that matters is that you're a new man on the inside. Ephesians 4.22, or 4.24 rather, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness. Colossians 3.10, put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. This is our life. And the very source of your new life is the very person of Jesus Christ. Paul would put it this way in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Jesus is the source and the reason for your sanctification and it comes to you through the gospel. You need to understand that. You need to get the fact that when he died, you died, your old man. You need to get the fact that when he was buried, you were buried because that old man was really dead. And you need to get the fact that when he was raised, you were raised and you're not who you were. According to Scripture in so many different places, you've been made new from tip to toe, inside to out, from beginning to end. You're new. Now, I want to show you what else that we need to know. So look at Romans 6.11. What do we do with all this? Okay? Look at Romans 6.11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. In other words, the first thing that you do with all this that I just told you is consider it to be true. Now the word is logizomai, but it's a, a mathematical, actually it's an accounting term. 
My son can't stand accounting now. It's an accounting term. It means put it into that column, credit it to that account. It's true. It, it's, it's reckoned. It's calculated. This is what has already actually taken place. In fact, it's even in the present tense. This is the habit of your life. I consider myself to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. And that's something you might very well tell yourself every day. Oh, no, 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 no. No, when you're tempted to sin. No, no, no. You don't understand. I consider myself to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ every single day. In other words, we have to rest in that truth that we are dead to sin. We have to count it as true because it is legally true in the counsel of God that you are now dead to sin. And we have to count it as true, legally true in the counsel of God because you have been made alive in Christ. Now, let me tell you what it's not because I still don't think you're there. Because when you, when you get there, you're going to feel a whole lot better on the inside. All right? Now, what it is not is, well, you can take it to the bank. You know, we say that when something's so certain that it's about to happen, we'll go ahead and count it as happened. That's not what this is. When I say consider it not to be true, it's not like shooting a three on the basketball court and turning away knowing it's going to go in and you look over and point at somebody before it goes in and go, you can count that. No, that's not it because it hasn't taken place. Nor is it like on the baseball field when you know you smack the ball and it's headed out and you just start the walk. You flip your bat, you start the walk before it goes over the fence. And you say to yourself, you can count that one gone. No, that's not what this is because it's not gone yet. That's not what we're talking about here. When he says to reckon it and to count it, it's a past tense thing. You count yourself dead because you've already died. It's not so certain it's going to happen. No, it's already happened when Jesus did. And when I tell you yourself to count yourself new and alive in Christ, it's not because it's so certain it will eventually happen. No, it's already happened. It's already happened. You were made new when Jesus walked out of that tomb. It's literally true. You just don't think that way. And yet God says you need to understand this when we get into the idea of you being made more like me. You count it true because it is true. But we don't do that. We walk around going, you know, I don't think this is ever going to happen. I don't think I'm ever going to be made more like Christ. But in reality, it's already taken place in the eyes of God. You just need to learn how to count it and reckon it. Let me give you an illustration of adoption. I don't have a whole lot left, so hang on. I started using marriage. I said, no, this time I'm going to use adoption because we can see legal stuff and all sort of things like this. Let's just say if parents find this child and they want to bring it into their family, right? And so they begin to go through the process. And during that process, eventually the child's parents' rights are cut off. They're dead. They don't count anymore. In the moment that's cut off, that, that child can now be adopted into a new family. So you go through the process, you even go through the court, you sign the paperwork, right? You change their name, and it's legally binding. That child has been made new, it lives in a new world, it's under new authority. They have a new name. Their whole lives are going to be radically different than what it once was before, because what it was before was not good. 
and not glorious. But now it's been made new and it's going to be radically different and glorious, okay? So the parents, what do the parents want to do? They just want the child to count it as true. And one of the ways they want them to count it true is they can't wait to hear these words. Mom? Because when that child calls their adopted parent, Mom, we're counting it. We're counting it now. And when they look at Dad and they go, Dad, his heart just fills with joy because the child's counting it now. They understand but let's keep walking through this analogy. Let's say it gets dark outside and it's time to go to bed. And the child comes walking out of the hall with a bag. They got clothes in the bag. And their new parents say, where are you going? I'm going home. And you're like, what are you talking about? This is your home. Well, I know what we said and I understand all that we went through, but I just can't reckon this in my mind. I just can't consider it. So I'm going to go back. To where I was. Well, all of a sudden the adopted parents, their hearts are completely broken because the child is not considering this to be true. And you're like, why in the world would you do this? Your life is new. I know, but I just, I just can't wrap my mind around it. I feel like I need to go home to my old parents. What's the problem there? The child can't reckon in their hearts and minds that that relationship does not exist. They're not under their authority. It does not matter what they say. It does not count. It's dead. But what they have over here, oh, that's what counts. In fact, they signed the paperwork in the courtroom. It's legally true. They just need to get it in their minds and their hearts that this is my new life now. Now let me suggest to you that's the problem, one of the greatest problems with your sanctification. You can't get that right in your mind. You think you're still a part of the old man and you have nothing to do with that guy. That relationship is dead and it's been cut off. Your father is in heaven and hallowed be his name. And you got into this relationship, not through paperwork, but back to marriage. You got into this relationship through marriage. You've got a new name. You have an entirely new existence. And all of, you, all of this has come to you through the gospel. But listen, y'all, i got to keep moving. It's not just through this thinking that we've got to get right in our mind. It's also practical applications that we have to get right to. So let me go through two of those quickly and I'll finish. Look at Romans 6 verse 12. Therefore, first application of this eternal truth that you need to count this true. Here's how you count it. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Do not let sin reign. You don't have any sort of relationship with that anymore. You've been made new on the inside. You don't have to listen to the outside. Before the, outs, the, the old was on the inside and it controlled the outside. Before it was sin living in you and your body moved according to that sin, it was enslaved. But now that sin's not what's in you. What's in you now is new life. Therefore, you don't have to listen. And Christopher, if I could pick on y'all, what if an old parent fussed on some of these kids that you brought into your family? You think that'd get Chris in the flesh real quick? I'm telling you in a heartbeat. 
in a heartbeat and rightly so because they will not rule and they will not reign. These kids, these kids are mine. I rule them and I reign over them. Let me ask you, why in the world would you let sin rule and reign in your life when they, you have nothing to do with that anymore? That's foolish. I will not listen to you. I've been cut off from you. I have nothing to do with you. You will not rule and reign in my life. I will not walk in you. You see, my chains were broken and I was set free and I was brought into a whole new situation. So I don't have to listen to you anymore. And I don't have to walk in you anymore. The second application comes in verse 13. And I'll, I'll go back over this next week because I know I'm going through it. But notice what he says here. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but rather present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And he's got all kinds of interesting language here that I'll go into more detail later. But when he talks about members, he's talking again, putting emphasis on the physical body because the physical body is animated by the inner man. In other words, before Jesus, your physical body was animated by sin. You couldn't do anything about that. But now that you're in Christ, your physical body can be animated by the Holy Spirit that we'll get to in chapter 8. In other words, the physical body can glorify God now because it has a new soul and a new heart that leads you in righteousness. Now when it says offer the members of your body as instruments, that's an interesting word. It literally can be translated weapons, which makes no sense, but this will make sense. It can also be translated as a tool. I watched and talked to Miss Burma while she worked in the flowers yesterday. And she's got an interesting tool. It's a big old hoe, great big old hoe, painted purple. And it gets the job done. It was like made for the job that she was trying to do. Now listen, when you were raised from the dead, you were made to work in the kingdom of God. You yourself are the tool in the hands of your heavenly Father. Why in the world would you go back and work in the kingdom of Satan and in the kingdom of the world? You're not cut out for that anymore. Your tool don't work there. So why would you hoe in the middle of the road when it doesn't work and it don't matter? Why wouldn't you hoe in the garden where the flowers are at? Because that's where your tool has been designed to work. You see, you have control over this now because you have the Spirit of God living inside of you. You don't have to offer the members of your body to sin anymore. You're entirely new. You're a whole new hoe, if you will, so to speak. And you can work fitted for the kingdom of heaven. So you can offer yourselves to God as instruments of righteousness. So last word, and then we'll pray. I want you to understand this. Through our union with Christ, in other words, through the gospel, you've been set free from sin and death. And we all praise the Lord for that. But through this very same gospel, we've been formed into a new life that is filled with righteousness and holiness. God has done something wonderful. You just got to get it. 
You've got to get these principles set in your heart and your mind. And when you begin to live according to these principles and the wisdom of God, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit has power and the ability to work with you. Let's pray.